We are starting our new service, Me, Myself, and God, and we're going to start with something that is the vision of who we are here at the Orchard. Our vision, you look up here, is love God and love people. And this comes from the Bible, which is a good place to come from if you're a church and it's a vision, correct? It comes from the Bible, and it's a a part of the Shema, which is a prayer, an ancient prayer that they would say. Jesus would pray this every morning from his childhood. Here's what he would pray. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. And the story goes like this. Matthew 22, one of the religious elite, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with a question. They're trying to, they're trying to get at him. They're trying to, to find flaws in what he says. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now at that time in the Tanakh, which was their Bible, the Old Testament, they had 613 commandments. 613 that they would follow. And so they're asking a, a, a loaded question, which one's the most important? And so out of the 613, Jesus answers this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love other people as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. Jesus says something in this, in this statement that is shocking. And, and if you've been with us for a while, Orchard, I want to re-remind you of some of this. And if you're new, visiting with us, this is the heartbeat of who we are. Jesus says something completely shocking, and it would have been revolutionary, actually, in that time. And I want to remind us of the revolutionary nature of it now. You see, Jesus doesn't just know the word. He doesn't just know it. He's the author of it. He is the very nature of the word of God. Only he could make the stunning statement we're going to discuss this morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love other people as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these commandments. That statement right there is just packed full of dynamite. This whole book is summed up with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love other people as yourself. Love God and love people encompasses the truth that you find in here. Jesus' statement is absolutely amazing. Now, why do I go into this? Why is it important to remind us of our vision that we see everywhere anyway? Because I I believe when Jesus says that the Bible hangs on those two commandments and he elevates them that high, that we can elevate them over and over in our own lives. Because the goal is that we would be a people who love God and who love people. And are we there yet? No, no. Will we ever finally arrive as a church and go, we made it? No. This is about progression, not perfection. This is about more and more making it a daily act of loving God and loving people as the core belief and consistent behavior of who we are. You know, my prayer for us here at the Orchard is to not only continue to be a people who know love God, love people, but that these commands would work deep into our hearts and our souls and our thoughts and our spirits, our, our behavior, our speech, our parenting, our marriages, our dating, our politics, our recreation, what we read and watch and sleeping and waking, that loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as yourself is so central to the Bible. My prayer is that it would become central to each of us. I want this to work its way into the marrow of our faith in our church so that if people around us would say anything about the orchard, they would know we're a people who love God and they would know by the way that we show it that we love people, all people. That It works in us and it works through us. 
This is important because this, this is the DNA of heaven. It's the midichlorians of, of, of heaven working in us and through us. The Holy Spirit throughout our day will consistently call us to love God and consistently call you to love people. Now, this sermon about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and others as yourself, it gets, it gets preached a lot in a lot of churches. And I would say about 75 to 80% of the time, they focus on loving God. And then 20 to 25% of the time, it's, it's, it's loving people. And there's this small section on this topic that we're gonna stop and take some time on over the next month. Love people as myself. Love people as myself. Now those four words are quite a quandary for many of us. Because this verse is saying that I will love people the very way that I do love myself. How I love myself is how I will love others. And we gotta be honest, we struggle in how we treat ourselves. We struggle in how we speak to ourselves. We, we struggle in how we love ourselves. I hear it all the time. Maybe you're like me and you've said it. I'm my, I'm my own worst critic. I'm so hard on myself. Or let's say you, throughout your day, you, you, you do something, you mess up, and you go, I'm, I'm such an idiot. Or insert your adjective that you have for yourself in there. What's your self-talk like? How do you speak to yourself? How can we truly love people if we don't truly love ourselves? And if we're honest, our love of ourselves is very conditional. It's conditional based on our behavior, based on what we say, which would naturally say, if our love for ourselves is conditional, then how we're gonna love other people is gonna be conditional based on how they act and based on what they say. That's the way we love ourselves. You hear me say it very often. Love God and love people. No asterisk. God doesn't give us an asterisk after love people uh, for who we don't have to love. He says love people, all people. But we rarely apply this to our own lives. You see, we, we put an asterisk in our own selves. Whenever we fail or falter or fall, we condemn our self-image with words, emotions. You know how you speak to yourself in the privacy of your own head and heart. So here's the rub. The Bible is summed up with loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving other people as yourself. And if we don't start to love ourselves the way God desires and designed us to, we will not be able to fully step into this vision of loving God and loving people. So this is vital. So with that, we kick off the series of me, myself, and God to find out how God thinks of us, how God sees us, and how God loves us. You know, one of the beauties of the Bible is that it is full of truth, capital T, truth, that is echoed in science and psychiatry and other human studies. And I found so many of these studies online as I was researching this topic. And one psychologist has made it his life work to study these ideas that uh, how do you love others without loving yourself. He's made it his life work. And, and I read this paper by him, this academic paper, and he spends the first part of it just wondering where this principle came from. Where, where did it come from? about loving other people and loving yourself first and to, to love. He, he doesn't know, literally he know that his creator wrote this on the hearts of people before psychiatry was even a thought. They all go on to write how this principle rings true. To truly love others, to truly value others, you should love and value yourself. And Brene Brown, who, who many of us watch and read, she says it very straight. 
We can only love others as much as we love ourselves. Now I want to stop and make one distinction about what we're not talking about because some of you love yourself a whole lot. (laughs) 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2 says, In the last days, terrible times will come for people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, etc., etc. The word love here is only used in this place in the Bible. And this, this is a love that looks first and foremost to its own interest. This is a selfish, self-centered love. It's a prideful love that, that places oneself on the throne of their life. And they will never love people the way they, they will never love people correctly because people are just a means to an end for their own selfish gains. That's not what we're talking about, this prideful love. Jesus uses an entirely different word when he speaks about love, when he speaks about this. In fact, he says, love others as yourself. The word he uses is agape. And you might have heard us talk about this before or somewhere else. Agape is an unconditional love with zero qualifiers. No conditions on good behavior. This is a love that is always on. It never falters. It never fails. And this is how God loves us. This is how he loves you. He loves you when you feel unlovable. He loves you when you feel like you do the worst thing you could ever do. No matter how far you think you are, God's love doesn't cease. Agape love is love without condition on the other person's behavior. And we are called by God to love ourselves in such a way. You're called to love yourself with the love of Jesus. And you can only do that if you see yourself how God sees you. If you don't know who you are in Jesus, if you don't know how you are seen because of Jesus, then we will not be fully be able to love ourselves with agape. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We agape because he first agaped. You are loved and called with unconditional love and you are called to turn and love with this agape, starting with your own self. I found in my decades of church work, there's a big gap between most people's life and how God sees us. How God sees and loves me. And how I see and love myself. There's a big gap here between how God sees us and how we see ourselves. The question today is, people, who does God say you are? How does God see you? How does God love you? How do you see yourself? How do you love yourself? And then we have this gap in the middle. And how does this gap affect our daily life? How does this gap between how God sees us and how we see ourselves impact us? I also want to know this. Who is informing you of who you are? Who, whose voice are you partnering with for your identity? This gap right here is a, is a spiritual identity crisis. What we have here is a spiritual mistaken identity where I am this person, yet I mistake myself for this person down here. And mistaken identity can be, can be dangerous. When the fires were burning here last summer, news crews from nationwide 
descended on our area to get footage. And a news cameraman from one of the large media outlets, he got here and quickly got on his cell phone and he called. He said, I need, I need a charter flight. I need a plane now. I need to get some footage. I need to go. And he, they said, come on down to the airport. We have a, a small propeller plane on the airstrip for you. He, he arrived at the airfield. He spotted the plane there on the airstrip, warming up outside the hangar. He jumped out, threw his bag of camera stuff in, shut the door and shouted, let's go. The pilot snapped to attention, started up the, the plane was started, taxied the plane, took off, got in the air, and the cameraman looking around, he said, yes, yes, go low, fly over the valley and make low passes back and forth so you can get the best footage. And the pilot did nothing. What? Why? The cameraman, impatient, said, because I'm the cameraman. I am, I'm here to get the footage of the fire. Go down there. Pilot did nothing. He swallowed, kept flying straight, and said, So, what I hear you telling me is you're not my flight instructor. <laughs> you know, my stake in identity can get us into a lot of trouble. And all jokes aside, mistaken identity in our own life can be catastrophic, it impacts us more than we know. You see, you get your identity from somewhere. And whatever that voice is in our life that informs us has the ultimate power to tell us who we are now and it also informs us of who we're gonna be. It's a powerful voice that you're listening to. Who are you listening to? If my identity flows from God, if I'm seeing myself as he sees me, then my identity is a firm foundation of faith. This foundation, it goes deeply, it's deeply rooted into Jesus and who who he says I am. And so that when life circumstances go wrong and the storms are all around me, I can stand securely in who I am because of who he says I am. But if my identity flows from anything other than God, if I don't see myself how he sees me, then my truest identity is not constant. It's conditional. The foundation of my identity will always be shifting and I will be dependent on the variable voices around me informing me of when I'm doing good or not. And this is, this is very common to all of us, me included. We, we all deal with this. You see, if my identity comes from my appearance, well, I'm in trouble. But, but, but other people, if, if your identity comes from your appearance, then your self-love and identity will ebb and flow based on how you perceive other people see you. And we all know somebody, maybe it's us, that as we get older and what we have our identity in starts to change over time, there's a personal crisis. My identity was in how I look. If my identity is in my accomplishments, then I will forever ebb and flow based upon my current success. You hear the quote, I'm only as good as my last win. That's an exhausting way to live life. When, when someone who knows how God sees them says, Jesus has won it all, despite what I lose. I'm only as good as my last success. And we've all seen people, or maybe we've been people, whose success has been their identity, and when life begins to crumble, or the recession hits, or something happens, there's a sense of panic. It's not just because their business is crumbling, it's because my personal kingdom, my worth, is crumbling as well. If my identity is in my family, then it will ebb and flow based on the level of dysfunction or how I feel at the moment as a parent or as a spouse. 
if my identity comes from my relationships or my significant other, then I'm always at the whim of somebody else's mood or if they're pleased with me. And, and, and I'm not going to be single for long because I, it's terrifying to not have somebody else let me know I'm okay in a relationship. You see, there are countless things in this world that inform us if we allow them, that tell us how valuable we are. But they're all temporary and they require constant persona maintenance to sustain. And it's exhausting living down here. If we depend on if our identity depends on anything other than God, then we will not be able to see ourselves as he sees us. Now, God showed us his great love by sending Jesus to die for us. And Jesus showed us his great love, and we read about this, by living for us, dying and resurrecting. And we have those things that we, we, we bank on. Easter's one of them in the past. But, but what about now? What about real time? How do we fill up and how do we see ourselves up here every day? Well, Romans 5.5 5 says that God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, to align with God's love, the Holy Spirit is our guide. God pours his love into your heart and soul through his spirit for those who are in Jesus. You see, the spirit resides in the deepest part of who we are for those who, who believe and follow Jesus. And the spirit speaks love into this gap and calls you calls you to come up here and see yourself how God does. Calls yourself to, to, for, to, to love yourself. Calls you to, to forgive yourself because that's how he sees you. He calls you to see yourself in the glorious way that you were created. The Holy Spirit is there to speak throughout our day about who we are. But most often, I found in my life, and in most other people's lives, we tune in to a very different voice. You know, the enemy is called in the Bible, the enemy of God and the enemy of us is called the accuser. The accuser comes with accusations. Romans 12.10, the accuser of God's children accuses them day and night, accuses us day and night. I want to remind you, the accuser has no good intentions for you. The accuser wants to diminish your peace, your joy, and how you see yourself. If you're finding low levels of peace, low levels of joy and contentment, low levels of hope and faith, I wonder whose voice you're partnering with. The accuser has a case against you of your past sin and current failings, and he loves to pull it out and remind you of how terrible you've been and how terrible you are. He speaks death to you. Having children has been a very big eye-opener for me on the lies of the accuser. My son Elijah, who is six now, he was, he was a boy his whole life who loved to sing. He would sing everywhere. He sang in the car, in his crib. He would sing with us outside. He just, he, he sang, and he loved to sing God's worship songs. At one point, he wanted to, he wanted to be a worship leader and play guitar, and, and you know, it's a four-year-old, and it's just, so, you know, who knows? He wanted to be a, an astronaut or a race car driver. But for a while there, all he wanted to do was sing, and he, he would always sing. In fact, we got a video of him. This is, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's the Lord, oh my soul. Now, 
Worship his holy name. There he is singing. He, listen, he would sing all the time. This was Eli around three years old, and he was just in the midst of it. He lo- he's loved it since he was young. Around four years old, Elijah stopped singing. He would not sing anymore. Not in the car, not in church, not with me, his dad, not with his mom. He wouldn't do it. And at night, I will, Eli and I, we, we read God's word, and then we pray it into our lives, and then we'll just lay there and talk. And it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure with the Holy Spirit. And Elijah, what are we going to talk about tonight? What God, what's, what's God going to do? And so this night, about um, two months ago, we were talking about worship. It came up. We we're talking about worship and what it is and, and what it means. And um, in and around this talk, Elijah got very serious, and he said, I don't sing good, Daddy. I don't sing good. And I said, buddy, is that why you stopped singing? And he dropped his head and said, I'm a bad singer. Now the reality is, a four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, Elijah's a great singer. I mean, I asked him, buddy, who told you you were a bad singer? Who said this to you? Where'd you hear it? He said, nobody told me. It just came in my mind. I just, and I was struck at that moment. How does a four-year-old back then, come to the conclusion he's a bad singer when it comes to something he's truly loved. We had an amazing talk that night about the accuser, about lies, about truth. I spent a good amount of time affirming my son and his voice, and we prayed about this together, we both, and then he rebuked the accuser's lie in, in, his, in his life. I kissed him goodnight, and I said goodbye, and then... um. I said, good night, buddy. And I went to the door and I closed it. And I just stood outside for a second, praying for the heart of my son, who at f- four years old heard something, a lie, and still living it. I'm sitting there praying outside the door. And I hear something inside. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh, oh, oh my soul. Just this little voice for the first time in two years, singing again. And since then, Elijah has been singing. With every note, my son rebukes the lie of the accuser. You see, the accuser wanted to diminish him with lies. And it's, it was four, it's a little kid, it happened, you know, oh, come on, how big. He wants to, di- it's a very good example of how the accuser wants to diminish us. Orchard, Where has your life been diminished by the lies of the accuser? This is an important question. You see, it could have been when you were four, you believed a lie, and you thought that voice was your own. And I'm gonna ask you, was that the voice of God, the Holy Spirit? Orchard, where in your life have you been diminished? Some of us have been living on lies for for decades just thinking that's the way it is. That's the way I am. I want to encourage you this week to get a piece of paper on the left side, right, lies, and write them out. This is a difficult but powerful exercise. Write out every lie that you believe about yourself. And on the right side, say, God says. And we'll get over to that in a second. But Orchard, it's an important question to ask. Where have I been diminished by the lies of the accuser? That moment in my life put me on high alert to the accuser's work in my children. And it's a real game of cat and mouse. You see, Amy and I speak 
identity and truth into our children at every turn. We speak all these things that come from heaven to Elijah and to Selah. But the accuser is sly and evil and he speaks diminishing death to their lives. And when we find, when we get on the trail of one of these lies in their lives, and there are more we're finding, we go after it with the force of heaven and speak truth. And we are intent on rooting out these lies while these children are in our care. And that's why I was so deeply convicted this week because I go after my kids' lies with so much force and I don't go after these lies in my own heart with the same intensity. I I will literally hear a voice that doesn't give me grace or love or forgiveness that condemns me and accuses me of all the things that I am not or all the things that I've done and instead of recognizing that as the voice of the accuser, oh man, it's right. It's right. And you have that sinking feeling as you begin to live in the diminishing death of accusation. The accuser works to diminish my children's lives and he's working to diminish mine. And he is actively working to diminish yours as well. My little story there about Elijah is potent. It's powerful. That story is a testimony of God's work in his life. And, And testimony, that little testimony I gave, could you feel it? It was powerful. It's important. Testimony is important. Now, testimony is kind of a churchy word. Share your testimony. Like we, like, you have to say it with an accent sometimes. Or, or we give our testimony when we get baptized. But, but how often do we talk about testimony outside of this room? Well, testimony is simply your God story. Testimony is your journey with Jesus. And it is dynamic. I was lost. I was spiritually dead. But Jesus, he died for me. He rose again from the grave and I believe in him and I follow him for salvation. And because of Jesus, he forgives all my sins and because of Jesus, he gives me peace and purpose in my present and because of Jesus, he's calling me to a hope of eternity and a hope that I can be different in my life. Your God story, your testimony of Jesus saving your soul, whatever age you were, wherever you were, when he ransomed your life, giving you grace. And for some of you, you're in the midst of your testimony because God is calling you to salvation today even. You're in the middle of it. He's he's calling you to forgiveness, to life. But that story, your God story, your testimony is powerful beyond measure. The problem is we downplay our testimony. I, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard I don't have a good testimony. You were dead spiritually and now you're alive. You are forgiven. There is no bad testimony. There's no bad God story. They're all miraculous. They're all amazing. When was the last time you thought through your test? Legit, answer this in your own mind. When was the last time you thought through your story? How you were, how you came to Jesus, and how you've been? When was the last time you wrote it down? When was the last time you spoke it to another person? Answer that in your own mind. It's important to know. Our testimony is powerful beyond measure because in the battlefield of your identity, your testimony is vital. Let's go back to Roman, or Revelation 12.10 where we just were. The accuser of God's children accuses them to God day and night, but the people of God conquered the accuser with the blood of Jesus and the power of their... I'm, I'm sorry. The power of their... 
One more time. The power of their that the accuser's lies were broken by the sacrifice of Jesus and by the power of your God story. Oh, but I don't have a good testimony. Well, it's one of your main weapons in your identity and to fight for who you are. Conquering the accuser happens by the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of our testimony. Orchard, your, your testimony is powerful. It's, it's pivotal. It's crucial for you to see yourself how God sees you. It's crucial for you to love yourself how God loves you. Apart from remembering the work of Jesus and your testimony, you will be informed by other voices that diminish you. When was the last time you thought about it? When was the last time you spoke it? I want to challenge you today to remember. To remember. There's power in remembrance. That's why it says in Luke 22 about communion, Jesus broke the bread into pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you take it and drink of it. Do it in remembrance of me. In communion, we remember. We remember the shed blood and broken body of Jesus. We remember the blood of Jesus, like it says in Revelations 12.10. And because of that sacrifice, our testimony is possible. I once was lost. I once was spiritually dead, but now I am found. I am alive They conquered the voice of the accuser by the blood of Jesus and the power of their testimony. Today, when you take communion, you are armed for battle for your identity. You sit there and hold the elements in your hands and in your heart that go after the accusations that want to diminish you so you'll never sing again. Who are you? Who's are you? One of the primary ways that God speaks to us in our identity is right here. His word. This book tells me God's nature. It's a revelation of the nature of God. It's also a revelation of my nature. In this book, I I find who he is, and in this book, he tells me who I am. If I'm having other informants Speak to me. I'll be convinced of a reality that's not true. But because of the work of Jesus, I want you to know something. This voice down here, the voice of the accuser, loves to convince me that I'm just a sinner. I'm the worst. But I'll tell you what. When I go to the source... I'm not a terrible, lowly sinner. Because of the work of Jesus, I am not who the accuser says I am. Because of Jesus, you are not who the accuser says you are. Who are you according to God's revelation? Let me tell you this. You are God's beloved, Jeremiah 31.3. You aren't barely saved. You are a full son or daughter of the Most High God himself, 1 John 3.1. God isn't angry with you. God delights in you. Zephaniah 3.17, you have no sin held against you. Jesus has set you free of guilt and you are fully, fully forgiven, 1 Peter 2.24. You aren't filthy with sin. You are washed completely clean, Isaiah 1.18. You are set free by Jesus. The chains that hold you, he has broken, Galatians 5.1. 
You aren't some lowly sinner. No, 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 no. Because of Jesus, you are a saint. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You're a full citizen of heaven. Philippians 3, 20. You are God's craftwork, his handiwork, created and made to do great things. Ephesians 2, 10. You aren't your old self. You're a new creation. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You aren't a secondary member of God's body. No, no, no. You are called to be a full minister of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. You are not defined by your sins. You're defined by his sacrifice and you are justified and declared clean. Romans 5, 1. Your salvation isn't conditional on your daily behavior. God holds your salvation and soul securely in his hand. John 10, 10, 28. You aren't living in guilt from God because of Jesus. He sets you free from guilt and free from condemnation, Romans 8, 1. You see, when you begin to believe what the accuser says about you, your life diminishes. Your peace, your joy, your hope, your power, your purpose, it diminishes. Your life stops singing. God didn't save you just to go to heaven like this. God saved you to go into all the world like this. And when we settle for a cheap suit of identity that's convinced us we're diminished, we forget about the glory we're called to. Who are you? Who are you? Are you settling? Are you listening? Are you diminished? You see, I'll tell you who you are. You are called to make a divine impact on this planet. You are literal light in darkness, Matthew 5, 13. You are connected to the divine flow of God's power, John 15, 5. You have been chosen, you have been appointed, and you have been anointed to go and do good works, John 15, 16. You are a personal witness to others in your life for all that Jesus has done, Acts 1, 8. Not only that, you are the temple. You are the sacred residence of the most potent and powerful force in the universe, the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, you are a minister of redemption, an agent of life, a catalyst of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, and you don't go out there alone. You're a co-worker with God in all of this. 2 Corinthians 6.1, you are powerful, effective, you're called, you're equipped, you're a child of God, and you can approach his throne, not with shame because of all you've done, but with confidence and boldness because your daddy's declared you forgiven. That's what this word says. Who's informing you of who you are? How do you approach God? Do you skulk into his presence because of all you've done? Or do you walk in to see your heavenly father who's forgiven you of everything? Who informs you of who you are? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, Philippians 4, 13. And when you stand, and when we stand, and when we work together, orchard, the gates of hell cannot stand against us. That's what his word declares about us. Matthew 16, 18. You want to see God's redemptive movement work in us and through us? Then stand up into the identity that he's called you to. No more skulking around, believing the lie of the diminishing accuser. Rise up into the purpose that you've been saved to. Speak up about the gift that's been given to you. It's time to stand up into the glorious identity. And in front of this whole world, may our voice be heard with Paul as he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Orchard, know who you are in Jesus. God's word gives us insight into his nature and into who we are. The Holy Spirit speaks love continually into the gap, telling you you're forgiven, you're loved. And Jesus' sacrifice sets us free of our old life. 
And our testimony, our God story, is powerful beyond measure because it reminds us what he's done and it reminds the accuser there's an end for you as well. Your testimony is powerful. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared for us. You are his handiwork. You are his masterpiece. You are his craftsmanship. Your mind, your body, your character, your personality, your strengths, even your weakness. You're not an accident, not some cosmic coincidence. You are you because he made you and he calls you to see yourself as he sees you. So as we end and as you come and get communion, I want you to come and grab the juice and the the bread, the symbol of his body and blood. And if you're a guest with us, The Bible has no qualifiers. It says, Jesus says, come do this in remembrance of me. And if you want to take communion that way, that's fine. And you sit down with the the symbols of his body and blood. And as you sit down, you are fully armed to combat the lies of the accuser. Because in your hands is the symbol of the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus that set you free. And then you have your testimony. And I want you to do something this week. I want you to do something right now in communion. And that is just think through your testimony. Who was I? When did I believe in you for salvation? And who am I now? And then you thank him for what he's done and take communion. Orchard, share your testimony this week. Think of it. Write it down. Write it out. It's powerful. You are not who the accuser says you are. You are called to power and purpose. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you died for us. Your blood has set us free. May we not... Then we not lose sight of the fact that you've created us to be powerful with purpose and peace. Remind us of our testimony. We were dead and you brought us to life. And Father, for those in here today who, who don't yet know you for eternal life, I pray you would woo and draw and call their souls. If you want prayer during this time, we're gonna have people in the back over there in the corner praying, up here in the front. If you'd like to talk to somebody about salvation, I'll be right up here, Charlie as well. Let's worship. Hey, 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 let's sing. Let's sing maybe like you haven't sung since you were four years old. Our God is great. And you know what? Because of him, so are you. Amen.